home assignment right now, so hopefully you'll get to see them. Let's put uh, chapter 8 in its context. Daniel is divided into two sections, the first six chapters uh, dealing with Daniel's life and stories from Daniel's life, and the last uh, six chapters dealing with the apocalyptic literature, the visions that uh, Daniel received, these remarkable prophecies that, uh, that Daniel received. Some which were uh, revealed to Daniel and uh, came true in Daniel's lifetime, and some of the prophecies were still to be fulfilled and still are to be fulfilled. This morning, I hope you like history. If you don't like history, just uh, hold your breath for about 40 minutes. But uh, this morning's uh, text is, is all about history. It's all about the fulfillment of what God has said in his word the vision that Daniel received, the prophecy that he supernaturally received from God, that God fulfilled that in history. One commentator says, history is when uh, seen from the Bible's perspective is simply God's, God's unfolding plan for the ages. God has a plan. History is his story. And what God does is, is he has a plan for the world and he has a plan for you. He has uh, care and concern for the ages, and he's bringing about his purposes down through the ages, and he has care and concern for you as well. For those of you that uh, want the bonus points uh, for the message, uh, these next two things are for you, those that are students of the scriptures. Daniel chapter 8 is a change in, 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 the, in the book of Daniel up until this point, except for the very opening uh, chapter of, of Daniel. Daniel has been writing in Aramaic. Uh, that's the language of the, of the Babylonians. And uh, at chapter 8, he changes to Hebrew. And so now from uh, chapter 8 through the end of the chapter, Daniel is now writing in Hebrew. And he's doing that because now the message isn't for the Babylonians. The message is for his people, God's people, uh, the Jewish nation. Some scholars come to chapter 8 and say, this is impossible that God could have given Daniel... Uh, supernaturally what was going to take place in history hundreds of years before it actually happened. So as we go through this chapter, you're going to see that there are historical events that were, were fulfilled after Daniel's time that Daniel saw in this vision that actually took place in history. And as the scholars compare what is written in this chapter with the historical events that have taken place, they say Daniel couldn't possibly have received a supernatural vision uh, from God. God doesn't do that, and therefore uh, this has to have been written after Daniel's time. It had to be something written while someone was looking back at history and, uh, and writing the word. So this prophecy is so amazing, so spectacular, so specific uh, in the historical fulfillment that, uh, that liberal scholars say this is, not, uh, this is not something that was actually prophesied. So this is a test chapter for you. If you believe that God supernaturally, supernaturally reveals himself to us and, and through his word, and that God actually does give prophecy, then you don't have a problem with what uh, with Daniel has, has received in this chapter in the visions that he received. Um, it's important uh, for you to view scripture as God-inspired. And uh, this is one of those passages where, where scholars would say it's so, it's so, you know, so true in history that it can't possibly have been written uh, by Daniel. So let's go to chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of uh, the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to Daniel after that which appeared to me at the first. 
Two weeks ago, Pastor Kevin spoke on uh, Daniel chapter 7, and you saw the four beasts, and you saw the last beast with ten horns, and out of one of those horns, another horn became a prominent horn, and uh, that you reflected on that, and you heard about what that meant, that there was the Babylonian Empire that was current to Daniel, and from that was going to arise the Medes and the Persian Empire, and from that the Greek Empire, and eventually the Roman Empire, and then out of that there was going to come a horn. But at the end of the chapter, what we saw was that the final kingdom of God comes and it is going to be an everlasting kingdom. So this chapter deals with a little bit about that, but zeroes in on some of the prophecy that, that Daniel had received in Daniel chapter 7 and expands it. So historically, this is about two years after chapter 7 was actually written. So verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 2, and I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was, on, uh, I was in Susa, the, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And you heard the, 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 the scripture read here. He sees a ram, a male ram. And it is a ram in power. And uh, he's by the river. He sees this strong ram. And the ram is, is moving. But it has two horns. Now, this is where the ram is a little bit different from a normal, a normal ram because one horn is bigger than the other. And the bigger horn came up second. So the ram has two horns, one with a, a smaller horn, one with a bigger horn, and, uh, and he is conquering in, in a number of different directions. He's moving west. He's moving north. He's moving, moving south. Now, as you come to apocalyptic literature and as you come to these visions, uh, some people want to speculate on what is it that they actually mean. So what is the meaning of the ram? Well, some people might speculate that it has to do with human ingenuity, that uh, hum humans are going to become smarter and they're going to push to the west and they're going to push in all directions and they're going to expand our understanding. Others would say, no, it has to do with man's sinfulness, fighting against the things of God. Man is going to keep pushing, pushing the boundaries and sinning more in all different kinds of directions. Or someone might say, well, this is really a messenger of peace, someone who is coming to battle for peace around the world. And the blessing that we have in chapter 8 is we don't have to speculate. As you already heard down in verse uh, 20, God has already told us who the ram is. As for the ram that you saw... With the horns, these are the kings of Mede and Persia. So we know what the ram represents. And here we want to take a little bit of a side as we look at scripture. How do you know how to interpret scripture? Well, the first thing that you need to do, the best way to, to, interpret, to interpret scripture, when you come into an image, when you come to a symbolic picture, when you come to something that you don't understand, is look to the context. What does the context say about that picture, about that image, about what you don't understand? And here in our context, we're given that the ram represents the Medes and the Persians. Well, if it's not in the direct context, how is it used in other parts of, of the scriptures? And you might get an understanding there. And if that doesn't help, then you look at history. How does this symbol, how does this picture appear in history? Well, the ram is something that is familiar in history, especially to the Medes and the Persians. The ruling class and the kings of Persia used the ram as a symbol of their power, of their authority, of who they were. It was stamped on the Persian coins. Those coins that have been found by archaeologists from this particular period have a ram stamped on them. It was part of the emperor's headdress uh, as the, the ruler of the Medes and the Persians. He had a ram horn ram horns in his headdress. 
So the ram is the national symbol of the Medes and the Persians, just like the eagle is of the United States, or the bear is for Russia, or the bulldog is for uh, Great Britain, or Canada has the fierce beaver. <laughs> so it's not strange to have a symbol which represents a, a nation and is so historically accurate concerning who the Persians are. So we have two horns represented, the Medes and the Persians, in the partnership that they were in. But the partnership wasn't an equal partnership. First there was the Medes, and then the Persians came in on, onto the scene. And the Persians were much stronger and much more important and, and much bigger. They came second, and they were stronger than the Medes, and they exerted their power, as the passage says, in three different directions. They gained territory in the east, but they didn't fight any battles to the east. But the passage here says that they went northward, they conquered the Scythians. They went westward, they conquered the Greeks. They went eastward, and they conquered the Egyptians. So we have this God-given picture of the Medes and the Persians and their empire and their conquests here in this particular chapter that David sees as this ram that is by the river. And then in verse 5, he sees another animal. He sees a goat. And as I was considering, uh, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which it had uh, seen standing on the bank of the canal, and ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close uh, to the ram and was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled, um, trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from the power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns before uh, the four winds of heaven. Well, we can speculate again. Who is this male goat? Is it uh, an ancient fertility symbol where there's immorality that is going to take place and is going to destroy, or is it disease and is it pestilence? Well, again, the scriptures tell us. We don't have to guess. Verse 21 and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arise, four kingdoms shall arise from the nation, but not with his power. Now, in the time of Daniel, it's easy to look at history and to see what is happening on the world stage. The Babylonian Empire that was, was so strong when Daniel is, is writing this down as you look around, you could see what was happening in Persia. You could, you could maybe begin to guess that the Medes and the Persians were going to take control. So there's not too much to, uh, you know, conjecture to think, well, you know, it, it's not too much to think that the Persians are going to take over the world stage. But the Greeks, they were still city-states at this particular point. And it's a big leap to suggest that, you know, Daniel would know, just looking at history, that it was going to be the Greeks that were going to overcome the Persian Empire. Um, the Greeks existed, but this is a hundred years or so in the future. So the Greeks represented by a goat. Now, I don't know why, but history tells us that the Greeks were known as the goat people. So that, that fits. 
Um, they were also uh, the, the coins that we can find from Alexander the Great and from the, the Greek Empire. Alexander actually has goat horns on his head on those coins. And it's an accurate prophetic description of what actually happens uh, in history. The Greek Empire rose from the West, as the scripture says, out of previous empires. The Greek Empire rose with great speed without touching the ground. When Alexander began to conquer, after he settled, uh, you know, brought the, the Greek nations together under one, and he began to fight against the Persians, he didn't lose a battle. And the swiftness of, of, of the empire that he created was, was unheard of. The Greek Empire had a notable ruler, Alexander. He was that great conspicuous or prominent horn. The Greek Empire uh, had a famous war with the Medes and the Persians. Um, we are told that the, the, the goat ran at him, the, the ram, in powerful wrath. The two empires hated each other. The scripture says that he charged, enraged against him. Some of the great fiercest battles that were fought in, in ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians until Alexander uh, finally won. The Greek Empire conquered the Medes and the Persians' empire and had no power. It had no power to stand before him, we're told, um, before the goat, the ram, lost. The reign of the Greek leader was suddenly cut short. We're told that the great horn was broken who represented the first king. Alexander started his campaigns in his 20s, and he died in Babylon at the age of about 32. He had more plans, more places to conquer, but his reign was cut short. The horn was broken off. And then what happened to the Greek empire after Alexander's death? Well, Alexander didn't have an, an heir to take over the kingdom. So after the death of Alexander, his generals took over. Um, instead of there being um, uh, an heir, there were four conspicuous horns that grew out of the goat. Four rulers after Alexander, towards the four winds of heaven, we're told. These four generals, Cassandra, ruled over Greece and its region. Uh, Lysanchus uh, ruled over Asia Minor. Seleucus ruled over Syria and Israel's land. And Ptolemy ruled over Egypt. So they broke up the kingdom, which was one, into four different pieces. And each general had uh, one particular section. The goat became very great. Alexander, as he moved from country to country, as he conquered, as he set up his empire, he wasn't just interested in acquiring land. He wasn't just interested in acquiring wealth. He became great. What he wanted to do was he wanted to spread the Greek culture throughout the world. That Hellenistic understanding. He was determined to spread Greek civilization wherever he went. Its culture, its language across every land. God was guiding history through Alexander the Great as he set up his kingdom. The Greek culture and the spreading of the Greek language prepared for the gospel, prepared for the first coming of Jesus Christ. By the time of Jesus Christ, Greek culture was common throughout the whole Mediterranean region. And the language that was spoken was Koine Greek. So as the gospels are written and as the letters of Paul are being trans transmitted around to the churches around the Mediterranean, it's all in Greek. 
because God was in control of history. It's his story. It's his plan. So he used Alexander to spread Greek culture, Greek language, so the gospel would be able to go out uh, in God's plan, in God's purpose. Verse 9, a single horn. Out of one of these horns came a little horn. You say, oh, good, something familiar. I think Pastor Kevin spoke about the little horn. Is the little horn here the same little horn in Daniel 7? That's the Antichrist? Yes and no. I'll explain that in a minute. The little horn grew with, with a great, exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Glorious land meaning Israel, because now it's in Hebrew, and now that the audience is, is, are the, the people of God. So the glorious land, they grew up great, even in the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars uh, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offerings were taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And uh, a host will be given over to him, uh, given to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. A horn grows up out of one of them. Four kingdoms, the kingdom of, of the Alexander the Great is divided into four, and one of those horns sprouts a little horn. So in history, we have Seleucus and his descendants, and we have him fighting against uh, Ptolemy over the, the Holy Land, over the land of Israel. And he finally gains control uh, of that land under his descendants, Antiochus the, the Third in 198 B.C., and then Antiochus III dies, and Antiochus IV takes over. And he gains the throne from Antiochus III, not as he should. He wasn't the son of Antiochus III. But he, he gained the throne through murder. He killed his brother. You know the, the royal family, you have an heir and you have a spare? Antiochus IV was the spare. But to be able to become the heir, he had to do away with the heir. So he did that. He killed his brother. Um, he rightfully killed the son of, of the, who should have been the, the, the one who inherited. The son was the rightful heir to the throne, but Antiochus IV had him also killed. So Antiochus IV legitimizes his rule through flattery and bribery and through deceit. Antiochus IV assumes a title for himself, and he calls himself Epiphanes meaning illustrious. It has an idea of deity in there, um, alluding, uh, alluding to deity. And the Jews didn't like calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, and they liked to make fun. They liked to play on words. So what they called him was Antiochus Epimenes, and that means madman. He's a crazy man, and he was a crazy man. Antiochus Epiphanes is 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 the is uh, described for us not only in the scriptures here, but also in the book of Maccabees and, and the things that, that he's done. And, and history knows about Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, so we have a dramatic fulfillment of this particular passage in history. And the critics say it is so close to Antiochus Epiphanes that it can't possibly have been spoken to Daniel supernaturally. 
it had to be written by looking back at what actually happened in history. Antiochus Epiphany exerted his dominion to the south and to the east and towards Israel, as the scripture says. Antiochus Epiphanes murdered other rulers and persecuted the people of Israel. The scripture says some of the hosts, some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. Antiochus Epiphany blasphemed God and uh, commanded worship uh, to be directed to himself. Uh, the scripture says it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Antiochus Epiphanes put a stop to the uh, temple sacrifice in Jerusalem. The scripture says it took away the daily sacrifice. Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. His sanctuary was overthrown, the scripture says. Antiochus Epiphanes opposed God and seemed to prosper. And the scripture says it, was throw, it, was, it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. One commentator writes the following concerning him. Antiochus uh, was an infamous persecutor of the Jewish people. He wanted them to submit to Greek culture and customs and was more than willing to use murder and violence to compel them. Antiochus's suppression of the Jews came to a head in December of 168 BC when he returned in defeat from Alexandria. He ordered his generals to seize Jerusalem on a Sabbath. There he erected an idol of Zeus and desecrated the altar by an offering of swine and sprinkling the pig juices uh, in the sanctuary. Sacrifice was ceased because of the temple was desecrated. First Maccabees describes how Antiochus persecuted the Jews and his blasphemy. Um, at this time, some estimates are that he was responsible for the murder of over 100,000 Jews. That's without modern weaponry. That's without modern ways of killing people. That's one at a time. He would see a baby Jewish boy and he would hang him up by its neck. He would kill people for, for no reason. And Daniel is seeing this vision. He's seeing what God is going to do and, and that this is going to happen to his people. So why is God allowing this? Well, the answer comes in verse 12. Because of transgression and it will throw... Uh, truth to the ground because of transgression. We don't have time this morning to go into all the things that happened, but basically the high priest's office of the high priest was sold. If you wanted to be the high priest, Antiochus Epiphanes would say, just give me enough money and I'll make you high priest. And that's what he did. And someone else says, well, I'll give you more money if you let me be high priest. And Antiochus says, great. And that person didn't have enough money to continue to pay the bribe. So he went into the temple and he took the gold, uh, the gold articles of the temple and he started to sell them so that he could keep paying off Antiochus Epiphanes. And finally, someone, uh, one of the old high priests got up and says, you can't do that. That's not right. That's not what God wants. And Antiochus Epiphanes sent in his armies to, to put that person down and, and to kill him and to restore order in the temple. But the order in the temple has already been been ruined because it has been desecrated with pig's blood. And so the sacrifices have been suspended. And Daniel sees all this. Verse 13, you have an angelic conversation that goes on. Then I heard the Holy One speaking. And another Holy One said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings and transgressions that make uh, desolate? And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled under, underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, 
then his sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. An angel is there, and he's looking at it. He sees the vision, and he says, how long is this going to be? How long is it going to be that the sanctuary is not going to be able to be used for worship? How long? What is the, the length of the time that the, the temple is going to be desecrated? And the answer comes back, 2,300 mornings and evenings. Now, here's an interesting part of the vision where Bible scholars look at it and say, well, what's 2,300 evenings and mornings? Some people say, as some, as some in Scripture say, 2,300 days. Some people say, no, that's 2,300 evenings and mornings, which means 1,150 days because you have a sacrifice in the morning and you have a sacrifice in the evening. The amazing thing is it doesn't really matter whether it's just over six years or just over three years because both of these time frames work in the history with Antiochus Epiphanes. It's either the time from when Antiochus Epiphanes started to persecute the people of God until the temple is restored, or it's when he desecrated the temple. It's just over three years before the temple is destroyed, uh, is restored. Well, how do you know that? Well, we actually know when the temple was rededicated. We celebrate Christmas. What do our Jewish friends celebrate? Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? Hanukkah is the feast of dedication where they rededicated the temple. And they didn't have enough oil in the lamps to last the seven days of the purification, and God performed a miracle and allowed the oil to last for the seven days. And Jesus, in, in, in John chapter 10, goes to the Feast of Dedication. There's no Feast of Dedication in the Old Testament. It's a recognition that on December 25th, 1965 BC, the temple was rededicated and sacrifice was reinstituted. And that was important because, again, Jesus had to come to the temple. Jesus had to go to this particular place. God not only knows the future, he guides the future. God only knows what is going to happen. He's in control of, of, of history. He's bringing about the pieces on, on the chessboard so that his will will be accomplished. And what he wants will take place, even through Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 15 Gabriel appears. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Daniel really does want to understand these visions. And as you'll see later on, as you continue to go through the book, Daniel doesn't understand um, a lot of these things. But he wanted to understand. And behold, there stood before me one having an appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. That's a little bit strong translation in English. Basically, it's, it's help him to understand. Give him an understanding, not make him understand. Because Daniel, at the end of this, doesn't understand. Um, so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Again, a little bit of a side here. I love Daniel. He's one of my favorite Old Testament characters. I wish I was more like Daniel. But Daniel was a godly man. Daniel is a, is, is a great example. Um, he was one who was not afraid. When he was a teenager and was taken into Babylon, he's the one that said, I draw the line in the sand and I will not defile myself. You can change my name. You can teach me all the things that Babylon wants to teach me. You can do whatever you want, but I will not defile myself. I will not go against my God. And even after he finished his education, 
when the soldiers were at the door because uh, Nebuchadnezzar had received that vision. And Nebuchadnezzar said to the wise men of, of Babylon, tell me what the vision was and tell me what the interpretation of the vision was. And no one could do it. And the soldiers were going to kill all the wise men, of which Daniel was now one of them. Daniel stood there by the, by the captain of the guard and said, give me some time so I can pray. And possibly my God will give us the answer. And he did. Or standing up to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel as an older man, not afraid to be in the lion's den. He was a man of tremendous godliness. And he sees Gabriel, who's only an angel. And his response is to fall flat on his face. Sometimes we take God a little bit too much for granted. What would happen if we saw an angel? Would we respond like Daniel when, in, as we see an angel who had been in the holy presence of God? What is it that we would do if, if we actually see the glory of God? Sometimes we're so lackadaisical. Sometimes we're so presumptuous. Sometimes we're so familiar with God that we think he's just our buddy. But God is God. He's the Holy One. Daniel falls on his face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. One of the things that I'm sure Pastor Kevin has never had happen is that you guys fall asleep when he's giving the message. Daniel fell to the ground fast asleep, and he touched me, and he gave, made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the um, indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. The vision refers to the end times. But wait a minute, Mr. Russell. You told us that this was about Antiochus Epiphanes. And it was fulfilled almost word for word as Daniel received the vision in the life and history of Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, that's true. Because in prophecy, sometimes we have what is a near and a far fulfillment. In the Old Testament, you're familiar with types and anti-types. Anti Abraham, as he sacrificed Isaac on, on the altar, that's a picture, that's a type of Christ's sacrifice for us in the cross. So that picture is fulfilled completely in the person of Christ. And in, in prophecy, we sometimes have a near fulfillment and we have a far fulfillment. For those theologians among you, that's the law of double reference, that there are two fulfillments. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power with force and intrigue, so will the Antichrist. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews, so will the Antichrist. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes stopped sacrifice and desecrated the temple, so will the Antichrist. As it seemed to be, as he seemed to be a complete success, Antiochus Epiphanes, so will the Antichrist. So the sad part of the message is, as we can see what Antiochus Epiphanes did in history, if you read through 1 Maccabees, if you go to the history books and you see how he treated the children of Israel, as you see the atrocities that he committed, as you see the terror that he brought, his life is a sample of what the Antichrist is going to do. As it was fulfilled in, in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, it's going to be even greater. 
in the fulfillment uh, in the Antichrist. So we the picture of the Antichrist is seen, a picture of it is seen here in this chapter as we look at Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 20 and 23, we've already read that passage where Gabriel explains uh, to Daniel who the ram was and who the goats are, uh, who the goat is. Verse 23, he talks then about this little horn that comes up um, and uh, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgression has reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddle, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and uh, destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall uh, even rise up against the, the, prince of prince, the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, and by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, and, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. The passage reads true of Antiochus, and it reads true of the Antichrist. A king of bold face, a king who is fierce. Antiochus was known for his brutality. And that is what the Antichrist is also going to be known as. Antiochus was one who understood riddles. He was conniving. He was deceitful. Antiochus knew by, that he could get what he wanted through flattery and through a smooth tongue. And the coming Antichrist will strike a covenant, we're told, with Israel and then not keep it. Uh, we're told that his power will be great, but not by his own power. Antiochus was empowered by Satan and allowed by God to do what, what he had, uh, had to do. The same is going to be true of the Antichrist. It's not by his power that he's going to do the things that, that he does. It's going to be by Satan. We're told that he shall succeed in whatever he does. Antiochus looked like he was a total success. The coming Antichrist will look like a complete winner until God topples his reign. He shall destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. Antiochus destroyed uh, his enemies and harshly persecuted the people of God. And the Antichrist will also destroy and persecute. Uh, he shall make deceit prosper. The rule of Antiochus is based on deceit. Um, and the Antichrist in the future is also, his rule is going to be marked by deceit. In uh, 2 Thessalonians, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception, uh, among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth, that they might be saved. Um, he, in his own mind, he's going to be great. Antiochus Epiphanes struck coins. And the, what he put on the coin was Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes says, I'm just like God. And the Antichrist is going to do exactly the same thing. He's going to claim to be God again in 2 Thessalonians so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And he shall even rise up against the prince of, prince of princes. 
um, Antiochus hated and fought against the Jews. He, he wanted to destroy them, the people of God. And the Antichrist is going to do the same thing, fight against the people of God because they hate God. He's going to be broken, but not by human hand. Antiochus Epiphanes didn't die in battle. He didn't die by any man's hand. He died of disease by himself. And similarly, the Antichrist is going to be defeated by the hand of Jesus, who's going to strike him down. And finally, Gabriel says to Daniel, seal up the book. Daniel must do this because his vision is referring to a period of time so far in the future that he wasn't going to understand it. So the Gabriel's, uh, he's told to seal up the book. Don't, don't open it up. Don't, don't spread it. Um, for us, the time is near. Revelation chapter 1 tells us Christ's return is imminent. In fact, at the end of Revelation, John is told to keep the book unsealed because now the revelation is for us. Now the revelation is to be understood as much as we can understand it. It is not sealed anymore as it was in Daniel's day because we've received more of the story. We've received more of, of, of other prophecies. We've received the New Testament and we can understand a little bit more about what the future is. In Daniel, in the last verse, verse 27, we see his reaction. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose, went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel was in physical shock and astonishment. Daniel probably couldn't understand why God was going to allow such a mighty persecutor of the people of God to come on the scene and to have such terror and to have such debasement and to have such terrible things happen. He couldn't understand it. He got sick with what he heard. Also, he, he got sick because he didn't have the pieces that we have. My wife likes to do jigsaw puzzles, and uh, she was doing one just this summer or this spring a month ago, and uh, she got to the end, and there was a piece missing, and she was sad. Daniel has this jigsaw puzzle in, in the book, The Visions That He Received, and he has hardly any of the pieces. He doesn't see what the picture is even supposed to look like, and that makes him sick. He wants to understand, but he can't, so he's told to seal up the book. And so he's sick. But then, I love this, this, this verse, that he got up. It didn't matter that he didn't understand all, this, all, the, all the visions. It didn't matter about the spiritual minis, uh, mysteries that were there. It didn't matter about his own physical weakness. He went about the king's business. Sometimes we get excited about prophecy. We get excited about what we think we, we, we understand is going to happen. Um, but we aren't to get excited about the prophecy. We need to understand the prophecy as much as we can and then get about the king's business. It's to motivate us to go and to share what we know with the world, with our, with our families, with our friends. Daniel said no one understood it. God wasn't playing games with, with Daniel. He wasn't saying, uh, I'm giving you something that you're never going to understand. He doesn't do that with us. He gives us his word. He gives us this, and he wants us to understand it. There's parts of it that Daniel didn't understand it, but it was because it was concerning the future for Daniel. For us, it's the imminent future that we're looking forward to. Now it is unsealed. 
we can understand it a little bit clearer than Daniel can. And that should make a difference for us. In conclusion, God is still merciful and he is still just. And as we leave this place, what should we understand? The fact of fulfilled prophecy is amazing. It's a testimony to the divine source of the Bible. We can trust the book because God supernaturally gave Daniel all of this understanding of history hundreds of years before it took place. And that should motivate us and that should give us an encouragement and that should, should make us stronger that there is fulfilled prophecy. Second of all, God warns us about a day and about a ruler that is still to come. Not to excite us, but to give us, or to give us a thrill, but to warn us that there's a coming world ruler and we need to be ready. Because now is the time that we have. And the Antichrist may already be on the scene, he may still be coming, but the scripture says he is coming and we need to be ready. And also let your heart ache for the pain in a lost world and for the pain that is to come. What Daniel saw that was going to happen to the people of God made him sick. And when we see what's happening in the world today, and we know what is going to happen when the Antichrist comes, it should also make us sick to some extent. We should feel that pain you need to be ready for the day that's coming. The end times are, are near. Christ's return is imminent. We believe that. The world is not ready, and they need to hear before it's too late. You can be ready for Jesus if you know you can be ready for the second coming if you know Jesus of the first coming. Jesus who died on the cross, who gave up himself, the, 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 paid the penalty for our sin, and through the open tomb demonstrated uh, the triumph over, over everything. You can be ready for the second coming of Christ by knowing the Jesus of the first coming. We are in the last days. Um, this is the end times. And unlike Daniel, we have more understanding than he had. Yet we still are in a period of grace. God is still merciful and just. But the end is coming. And we need to be ready.